And he said he was in Rikers for 10 years. And when he was in Rikers, you get like this very, very minimal like dollar a day or something. You get like this tiny amount of like commissary money every day. And he saved all of that money. And when he got released after 10 years, he went and bought a, a hoodie. He bought a pair of Timberlands and he brought a pair of jeans. And when he went into the shelter that night, because he had nowhere to go, and he was released from Rikers, and he went right to the, to the shelter, in the, the city shelter system. At night, he took off his hoodie, he took off his boots and his jeans, and he folded them up like he always did when he was in prison, because 10 years, this is how he operated. And he went to sleep, and he woke up, and it was gone. All gone. And he walked in his boxer shorts and his undershirt to the security guard to report that his things had been stolen, and the security guard was wearing his Timberlands. Good day, dear friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. My guest this week is an absolutely phenomenal human, Josiah Haken. Josiah, as of six weeks ago, is CEO of New York City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting the homeless to resources that can change their lives. He has been with the organization for a decade or so, but just recently took on much more responsibility. Josiah is widely recognized as the go-to person in New York City when it comes to teaching others how to engage with the homeless. He leads workshops with many of New York City's major organizations that deal with homelessness, as well as with many faith communities in New York City, New Jersey, and across the U.S. Josiah and I have quite a bit in common. We both grew up overseas, Josiah in Yaoundé, Cameroon, and me in Guatemala City, Guatemala. Our parents were missionaries. We both saw the complexities of urban poverty at a very early age. We both have traveled so much that we feel like we have no home, and we both love New York City a lot. And this city that we love so much is home to the highest number of people experiencing homelessness in the United States, and we are number two in the world. Among other things during this conversation, we discuss some of the ways our mayor and city officials are hurting the city and our homeless neighbors with their misguided policies and rhetoric. And we discuss ways we can actually help eradicate homelessness in New York City and beyond. This conversation is amazing. I can't wait for you to hear it. A little side note before we move on, though. Many of you may notice in this conversation, if you get through the entire thing, that I cussed a grand total of zero times in this conversation. I'm holding for applause. But in case you're wondering, that was intentional. Josiah's organization is super amazing, but many of the donors and partners there are conservative, much more conservative than we are and I am. So we kept it clean to reach as many people as we could in our world and in their world. I only bring this up because if people are joining in and listening for the first time because Josiah or City Relief or someone in that world shared it, I don't want them to think that this is a G-rated show. I don't want to send them down that path only for them to be surprised and for them to find out otherwise. It just isn't. We get flavorful with our language 
as so many of you know. But we hope that won't deter you from joining us for many other podcast conversations in the future. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Josiah Haken. Let's go. Josiah Haken, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I have been looking forward to this for a while. You and I met a few months ago through our mutual friend, Bob Dalton, who has also been on the podcast. And um, yeah, I was really, you. Bob was interviewing you at this little event in Soho. And I found myself nodding quite a bit to so many of the things that you were saying, so many of the things you were sharing about uh, who the people are experiencing homelessness here in New York City and why, and and we'll get into all that here in a minute. But I I knew at that moment, we hadn't even met at that point, but I knew at that moment, I was like, at some point, gotta have Josiah on to talk about this because this is something that a lot of people think about. Uh, most people listening live in a place where they see some level of, homelessness. Uh, we obviously live in the city with the most homelessness in the U.S., and I found out that it's also the second in the world. Wow. Just behind Manila, Philippines. Um, and again, we'll, I've, I've, I need to learn from you today because there's, even just thinking about this conversation, the few notes I jotted down beforehand, I found myself getting extremely upset that we can't fix this because we should be able to. This is the weirdest, I think, timeline to ever live in because in, in, in years and decades and centuries past, there may not have been the resources to fix this thing. Now we have it all. We have uh, megalomaniacal plutocrats like Elon Musk's, you know, out of spite and out of, you know, in the name of wanting free speech is gonna buy, wants to buy Twitter for $42 billion when half of that money could eradicate homelessness here in the US, right? But but no, we're, it's, it's power and money and all this stuff happening in this upper echelon of people. And yet we're around it all the time. And it just, I'm sure more mind boggling or more mind boggling for me because you have more solutions and a handle on this. But so all that to say, I'm so excited to be talking to you. I'm so excited to be learning from you today all of us are going to learn from you. Um, so again, that was a long way of saying welcome. I'm so glad you're here. It, I'm happy to be here. And all I could think about was it's either it's either buying Twitter or sending a rocket ship to the moon. You know, either way, it's not helping anybody around here. It's not helping anybody around here. It it, it really isn't. It is. It is. How do we? It's almost like so many of these people that don't live in our world seemingly, have kind of, they say they, they haven't given up on this planet, but everything is telling me that they have, because they're all, think about the amount of billionaires right now that are trying to get off this planet well before we have worked enough on this planet. Like, I'm like, what do you, like, I, I understand you're a dreamer, you want to explore, you want to get out there, but how do you do that? 
when you haven't even done what you all you could hear, like you're moving on well before you should. If we fixed all of it here, then knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. Yeah. Go to all of the planets, all of them, like get everywhere. Yeah. But we've got so much work here. We've got so much work here, y'all. Um, okay, so here's what here's how I want to start this. I want to know more about your. I usually begin these conversations trying to explore childhood, growing up years, influences, the who, what, when, where, and why of Josiah Haken's upbringing. Because usually in there, we find a few clues, one or two or three, uh, that point us and like, how did you end up doing the stuff you're doing today, right? So go back as far as you want to. I won't tell you where to start. A lot of people, some people start, you know, day one. And some people, it's so funny. Some people that I know that speak for a living, I'll ask that question and they spend 12 literal seconds on all the upbringing. And then all of a sudden they're in college. I'm like, wait a second, you just skipped 20 years of your life. You can't, come on, your your upbringing had to be more lively than 12 seconds worth. So I won't tell you where to go, but start wherever you want to. And um, whenever you get to the the missionary kid part, I do want to stop there. Most people listening know that I spent time as a missionary kid. They all know my evangelical upbringing woes. Um, but yeah, go back as far as you want to. Who who are the people, places, and things that shaped you? So to be honest with you, all I can think about when someone says, you know, want to go back to the beginning or what you're upbringing, all I can think about is that scene from The Office where Dwight Schrute starts describing his the birth canal. Oh, my God. <laughs> Coming out of the womb. Uh, so I'm not going to do that, but that's all I have in my head right now. Um, but I was born... Uh, in Yaoundé, Cameroon, you know, in, in, in West Africa. Um, I was the youngest of four. And uh, I tell people that um, my mom, my parents were missionaries in Nigeria for 10 years. Uh, and then they, my dad was a bush pilot. So he would fly little planes out into the middle of nowhere. And they needed a new pilot in Cameroon. Um, and it was a, Cameroon's a French-speaking area, at least the, the capital and the southern regions are French primarily. Um, and my mom tells people that the reason I was born is because they went to Switzerland to study French and no one ever taught them the French word for condom. Yeah. Um, so come along Josiah a uh, f- few months later in Cameroon after they had moved there. Um, and so then I spent, you know, the most of my childhood sort of bouncing back and forth between Yonda Cameroon and Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, little different. Little different. Little different. Just, just a smidge. Um, so my memories of childhood are you know, dirt roads, um, tin roofs, um, kids playing soccer with the little rags that are tied up. And, yep, yep. You know, and then um, we went to, I went to an international school uh, that was, you know, so it was like the UN. Uh, in, L- Cameroon. in Cameroon. So, like, we had, you know, three Americans. We had Koreans. We had Cameroonians. We had kids from Zimbabwe. We had, um, you know, kids from Europe. It was so, and there was like 15 of us. So there's more countries than kids almost. Oh, wow. Um, so wait, that's how many were in your class or the in school? In my class. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still, that's yeah, yeah. a small class. Yeah. So it was a, I mean, it was a great, great, exp- honestly, I have no regrets about that experience in terms of, I love being around other cultures. I loved the languages. I loved, you know, just being in that environment. So that's kind of where I grew up. And then, um, traveling back to, 
um, Hershey, Pennsylvania was the exact opposite. Basically, you know, yeah. you're in a room full of white kids and, um, you know, it's a suburban wealthy area. Um, inc- you know, very nice people, but it was just a very different, very different environment. So I, I played sports as a kid, um, mostly soccer. Cause again, if you're going to be in Cameroon, you're going to play soccer. Um, and then that was sort of the way I incorporated myself into the world, uh, in terms of finding my own purpose and my own meaning and my own sense of self. It was playing sports. It was running around and just, you know, having this childhood experience in this multicultural, uh, environment. So that was kind of where I grew up. What ages were you in Cameroon and when did you come back to Hershey? So I was in Hershey for half of kindergarten, half of third grade, all of fifth and sixth grade. Were those like the furloughs where you come yes. home and visit? Yep. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and then my parents, so my parents were in Africa for a grand total of 25 years. Um, and they, uh, so when I was going into high school as a freshman, um, we basically were, tr- that was when we permanently moved stateside. Um, and so we, I went all, th- all through high school in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, and yeah, and that was kind of the, the environment that I grew up in. But I mean, to answer your question in terms of like, just my, like, as I look back on like key things that helped me, like formed me and helped me function, like become the person I am. um, Lots of things come to mind in terms of just poverty. Um, Developing world poverty is something that you, you know, you can't ignore. I remember one specific incident um, where there was a little kid who would bang a rock against our gate outside of our house and say, j'ai faim, j'ai faim, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Mm. Um, and I remember as a kid, like I'd be sitting at the dinner table and my parents would just quietly get up, make a sandwich and take it out to him. Um, but as a kid, like I remember like processing that, you know, and then um, there was like in Cameroon, all the all the people would put in our, in our neighborhood would put their the garbage in a big pile at the end of the street, because there was like these dirt roads that came off of this yep, main yep. road. And like the by the main road is where the garbage trucks would come through. Um, and so there were people living in the in those trash piles. Um, and so that was sort of like, even as a kid, like walking up to catch a taxi to go to school, um, I would pass, you know, people who were living in this, in this garbage dump. Um, and that was always something that was sort of shocking as a kid, like as a kid, you yeah. know, especially like a white American kid in a Cameroonian uh, environment, have like seeing that and processing that. Um, that was significant, I think. Um, so, yeah, those are just a couple of things. And then coming back to the U.S., I really struggled to sort of process what that world was thinking while the other world was simultaneously happening, right? Yeah. So I knew what was going on in Cameroon because I was there, and I would come to Hershey, and but no one in Hershey cared about what was going on over there. Um, and it was just two parallel universes almost. It was, yeah, it's as if there's two different worlds um, going on. So many parallels between us. I'm going to point out a few of them. One is very trivial, but... Um, Hershey, Pennsylvania, I worked for an organization in Harrisburg, more specifically Linglestown, Pennsylvania, which is like 20 minutes away. My parents grew up in Linglestown. Okay. One of my favorite coffee shops ever, it's called St. Thomas Roasters, still there on Main Street in Linglestown. Um, So that wasn't spent probably each year. I was with that organization for five years. 
each year we only spent three or four months there. We traveled the world for the rest. We were just on the road for the rest of the time. But um, yeah, I mean, I obviously being in Harrisburg and Linglestown visited Hershey often. I know that area super, super, super well. So there's one parallel. Again, that one's not important, but it's worth mentioning. I imagine uh, where you lived in Cameroon, very similar to not where I lived in Guatemala, but actually more. So after I left home um, at 1920, my parents moved to Honduras. And this is where a lot of the parallels come into play. They, they moved, they lived up on this mountain outside of the capital city of Tegucigalpa. And it was mostly dirt roads, very, very wealthy. I don't know how the area was. It was, it was this weird, there, there were juxtapositions everywhere. I mean, just wealthy homes that were on dirt roads with poor people everywhere, Yep, homeless people everywhere. So you have these like gated homes, you go in there and it's this beautiful property, gardeners and maids and all, you know, the whole thing, you know, uh, you know, whatever Mercedes G wagons pulling out of the driveway. And yet right outside, it was just, it, it truly looked like what you think a third world country yeah. would look like. So that's where they, and, and my dad actually worked at a school similar to yours and sort of an expat school with kids from all over the world. Yes, there were some Hondurans, but they, the Honduran kids like, were probably like the like the polit- politicians' kids. Yes, yeah, like I think the president yep. of Cameroon's kids went to my international school. Exactly, it was all it was lawyers and doctors and politicians. They sent their kids there because you know it's gated. There's guards, and they're getting this influence from all over the world. You have kids from all over Europe, all over Asia, all over the Americas. Um, so I know that scene very very. I was homeschooled for most of my schooling. But then when they moved over there, his job, so he left, they were missionaries, similar to your parents. And then they still, I guess, were still technically missionaries. But the reason they moved from Guatemala to Honduras was because he got an actual job at that school as like the pastor of the school, spiritual life Mm -hmm. director, as they call it. Um, And they were there another five or six years. So we have some, we have some parallels going on here. So you said you don't regret it growing up that way. Yeah. I don't regret it either. Even though it was hard. And during that season of my life, family was, we were super close. And also there was a lot of abuse happening. Mm. My dad was, you know, now we're finding out later as we, you know, as a lot of things are, my dad was not um, anything like a lot of the people that are being exposed now. But there was, you know, there was, this, there was the, the impetus was there to hide all the family stuff yeah. while putting on a good, a brave face, right? You in your new podcast, which we'll talk about later, just interviewed this woman, Dietra, that experienced that yeah. as the, 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 the wife of a leader, right? Doing all these things, showing up at churches, doing all these ministry things. And all the while it was held behind the scenes. That was my upbringing. So when I think about childhood growing up in Guatemala, you know, kidnappings, murders, like all the crazy stuff happening. We lived right in the heart of Guatemala City. I don't regret any of it. And because most most of life is both and, not either or. And it was hard. Yeah. Were there any hard sides to the I don't regret it 
Or was it truly like, and it's fine if it was truly like, no, it was good. It was good. My parents were good. Yeah, they were did parent stuff, but like they were good. Or what was the flavor there? Yeah, I mean, my parents um, are, are to this day some of the people I respect the most in the world. Um, I so I feel I'm very fortunate. I know I have a lot of friends who the way I describe like, you know, third culture kids, like people who grew up as Americans in a, in a developing world country, um, you know, like you and I, like MKs and, you know, Peace Corps kids and army brats and the whole thing. Um, I, what I say is there's basically almost two different outcomes that happen. Either people go way off the rails because, yeah. because of the toxicity and the, yep. there's the destruction, or it helps form them into thinking like culturally, um, you know, um, thoughtful yep. and multi-talented people who can kind of adapt to any circumstance. Yep. Um, I would say most of my siblings and I, I would argue, now this is biased, but would we fall into the second category? Um, we've had, you know, little, you know, challenges and things that we've been de- dealing with and stuff, but from as a result of our childhood, um, I was also the youngest of four. So my parents got three tries before me. Yeah. Um, so by yeah. the time, so the time I rolled around, like, and what's the age gap? 10 years. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So my oldest brother and my oldest sister, and then even my brother who's four years older than me, who's the closest to my age, probably had very different experiences than I did because my parents got to like learn some of the make some of the mistakes that you make as a parent yep. um, with those kids. And then I came along and I think I got some of the benefits of their their learnings. So I think my childhood in that experience, in that cultural environment, um, was probably more chill. Um, they, my parents were not very uptight about, like, me being a kid and going outside the house. And, like, now looking back, I would say, would I ever allow my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old to do the things that my parents let me do? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's no way. Um, so I don't know if that's just courage on their part. Like they were able to just let go <laughs> and uh, or or they were just beaten down. They're just tired and they're like, screw it, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just probably a, probably a mix of both. Combination, both and right. Yep. Um, so for me, as I look back, I you know, I struggled. I mean, there's obviously this the the trauma of of lasting friendships. Yeah. And saying goodbye every two years. All the time. Um, And so to this day, I have a shutoff mechanism that I can, that I usually tap into when someone moves away or someone leaves. It's really like I have this shutoff valve where I'm like, okay, well, that person is now over. That season of my life is done um, until maybe our our paths will cross in the future. But it's not like I have, like I I developed this sort of emotional shutoff valve um, to loss. In terms of people, because as a as a missionary kid, you you're losing people constantly. All the time. Um, you're always saying goodbye, um, and so you can either just be wrecked by that uh, every time it happens, or you can again adapt and cope and learn to shut it off and learn to uh, you know sort of just make your peace with this is the way this is normal. Um, and I would say I did that second part again. I, I was sort of like this is normal, and um, I'm sure that impacted my ability to cultivate relationships in a healthy way in some, in some, in some ways. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think that there, there are more pros than cons in terms of my ability to adapt and, uh, kind of cope with, with, with things and difficult circumstances. So my parents, um, have 12 kids. They had 12 kids, one at a time, same marriage. They're absolutely not okay in the head, but they're also amazing. <laughs> 
And they had, I mean, we had, there were 12 in Guatemala in a third world country at a time when, I mean, at that time when we moved over there, there were, I think there were 10, not 12, maybe nine, not 12. I think they had three more when we were there. But, okay, nine. Uh, <laughs> I, nine. Once you go past five, Seriously, I don't think it matters. It does. It just, it gets, it gets out of hand. But, you know, people thought they were absolutely bonkers for taking children to a country at the time because we moved there in 95, 94, 95, somewhere around there. And it was right at the tail end of a 40-year civil war. And things got way more violent for two or three years after that because you had all these people that had been fighting literally their whole lives. They didn't know what else to do. They tried to, they tried to, you know, uh, drop into society and figure it out and assimilate and get jobs and have families. But when that didn't work out because it's a third world country, they went back to what they knew to do. And so it was very, we saw also, I've seen people, I've seen more people than I'd care to admit murdered in front of me. Like I've seen dead people. I've seen people get kidnapped. They tried to kidnap me. Like all of that shaped me. Well, it's funny because you said that your your siblings, as far as you know, like all were in the second category. I think because of the odd, like it was 12 kids. Um, most of us used it to our advantage, or I'd say a third of us used it to our advantage. A third are just pretty normal, like as if they had lived there and not, you know, lived here all their lives and not there. And then probably a third, I think there's been a range of issues that have come up over the years. One is God love him, you know, in his early thirties and still doesn't seem to give crap about like, just is fine with his like minimum wage job and just like chilling. And a lot of that, that just, uh, not caring came from his detachment from friendships and everything still doesn't have friends. And I hate that for him. But like he just is so just blah about yeah. life. And then a couple others has been a lot of like mental health issues and suicide attempts and just different things that have happened. So it's kind of funny now that we're all the youngest is my youngest sister is 20, 19, 20. And my brother, who's the oldest, is 40, 40. So like, you know, 12 kids in 20 years. Um kind of interesting seeing it now like how it's playing out in relationships and you know families are starting to form six of us are married now five of us have kids or seven are married now five have no eight are married now as of last month five of us have kids um yeah it's kind of wild it's kind of wild but I don't regret it at all yeah like I really I I don't say this to like pat myself in the back but out of all of my siblings maybe one or two others like really used my and our experiences growing up to our advantage. Yeah. Like I, if it were up to me right now, I would leave the U S and never come back. I just would. I don't feel attached to this country. I am. If people look to me for patriotism, you're looking in the wrong place. Like I don't hate this country. Like some people think that I do, but I do not love this country. Like I would not, if there was ever a draft, you better believe I'm dodging that. A, I'm a pacifist. B, I just don't care. Like this is not my country. I am. A, I I live in no man's I, land. I think it's really interesting because people oftentimes will ask me, like, you know, where are you from or whatever. I'm just, and I'm like, I'm a man without a country. 
Like that's how I would describe. Like again, and it's the same exact thing in the sense of I'm not antagonistic. I'm not like, but I have friends who grew up in Cameroon who were super patriotic. Yep. Like, like, like compensating toward the U.S. Yeah. Or toward the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To the U.S. Um, which I always thought was fascinating. I'm like, what? And then you have people who I grew up with who ended up marrying a Cameroonian yep. and basically settling in to the Cameroonian culture and. Um, but it's, you know, but there's that element of when you're in that culture, <clears throat> you don't belong. You don't really belong anywhere. So when I'm growing up in Yaoundé, Cameroon, and I'm playing soccer with my friends out, you know, in the street, um, I don't really belong. I, I stand out. I'm, I'm the kid that doesn't fit. Um, and then when I come to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I'm in the, amongst my peers there, I don't fit there. You don't there. know what's going on. Yeah, I don't. And, yep. um, and I went through a phase in fifth and sixth grade where I tried so hard to fit in in Hershey, and it just went horribly wrong um, that when I went back to Cameroon for seventh and eighth grade, I kind of actually remember making this conscious decision. And this is not normal for a sixth or seventh grader, right, to make the decision that I am not going to live trying to impress and please my peers. Yeah. Like I made a conscious, it was a conscious choice. It was like, when I go back, I'm not, because because you every two years you get a reset. So I was like, I was going back to Cameroon. I'm like, listen, I'm not, I, I just did two years in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It did not go well. I made friends with the wrong people. I got into trouble. I just, I wasn't, wasn't good. Um, but again, not like trouble. I mean, it was fifth and sixth grade, right? But um, when I came back as a high schooler, I made a, I was very intentional about not, trying to fit in. So it was just interesting. So like having that dynamic of not belonging anywhere, um, I resonate with that. Yeah. I have multiple passports and I don't know what to do with them or me, you know? I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, like we, my wife and I have talked many times, more times than I care to admit or that she would want to listen to over again, just about like, do we just leave? Do we move? Like, the quality of life is way better elsewhere. We'll get into some of that today, just how this idea of American exceptionalism, but we can't take care of our homeless. American exceptionalism, but we have horrible rates on, you know, health health and health care and all these things, right? Like I've never gotten, not for one moment in my life, have I never like understood American exceptionalism, not because I don't think this country is, you know, good in some ways. It, there are a lot of cool things here. There are opportunities here you don't find in most other places. But I don't, I don't understand it. And so we've talked many times about leaving. And that's sort of why we ended up here, partly. I've always wanted to move to New York City. Growing up in upstate and then leave upstate New York and then leaving. Every time we came back, every time, like every chance I could get, I wanted to be in New York City. This is the greatest city in the world, honestly. Why? Because this is maybe the only, it's the only city like it on the planet. And that the entire world has come here. And so much happens and goes back out. There are a lot of global cities. There are a lot of cities where there's a lot of things happening. Again, I'm not saying New York's the only place that happens, but this city then takes all of that, those people in the food and the backgrounds and the ideas and the, and turns it into something that truly then goes back out and changes the world. Like this is a unique, beautiful, amazing city. And so that was kind of our, our, you know, response was if we're not going to move to, you know, Germany, if we're not going to move to, you know, Portugal, if we're not going to move to these places that we really want to go to, well, New York's the next best thing because the whole world is there. We actually get a leg up on if we lived in Germany or in Portugal or wherever else, because the whole world's here. Do you feel that way? How do you feel about 
the city that you and I live in and get to be in all the time. I mean, I knew it the first time I came to do outreach with the organization I work for with, with homeless folks. Um, one of, I, my first day doing outreach was in East Harlem on Park Avenue. Um, on 124th Street by the Metro North. Right near my apartment. And, you know, there used to be these African hair braiding salon. There used to be more of them. I don't know if there's, there's there are definitely fewer than there were when I started 10 years ago or 12 years ago. But when I started, there was an African hair braiding salon right there on the sidewalk where we did our outreach. And I remember my first day stepping off of our outreach vehicle on the sidewalk and seeing these women in multicolored, you know, garbs and the headdresses and like, like, I'm in a different country. I, and I was, and they spoke French and yeah. I was like, bonjour. Yeah. <laughs> I like jumped. I just felt at home. Um, and like I said, I grew up in, this, you know, in my school in Cameroon was so multicultural. And so like hearing different languages and hearing like on the subway. And like, I remember another time very early on working in New York city, when I was on the subway and I looked around and I was the only white person yeah. in the entire car yep. and it was packed and I was just so happy. I yep. was like, it just made me so happy to be the only white guy in that subway car. So um, for me, I'm, I love New York and I'm, you know, I'm, um, I've, my wife and I have talked extensively about it and we're not planning on moving anywhere else. Um, and now work aside, I, this was when we decided that, um, you know, this was before I became the CEO of the organization I'm working with. And um, I still had all these sort of possibilities of what we were going to do. And, but I just, we just knew like this specific city in this area is where we, where we belong. So I completely affirm everything you're saying. Like, I just, just love it here. Um, and I just love the, the people. And now I will say that my wife, you know, she's a, she grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Like okay. she's yep. like, so she said to me from the beginning, I need grass. I need green grass. I need like, that's something. So New Jersey is where we live. Yeah. And it's because my wife has gone as far as she's willing to go. <laughs> we live in the suburbs of Newark, yeah. Newark, New Jersey. So we're like a hop, skip and a jump from Manhattan. Right, getting pretty quickly, um, but, yeah. but at the same time, it allows my wife to still have a yard, um, which, which is really important to her. So uh, we've we've had a compromise, so we're going to stay probably in that area. I would guess, unless unless something dramatic changes, but that's where we're planning on being for the rest of our lives. Totally understand. Okay, before we get into, let's transition now to the work that you're doing because we have a lot to get through. A describing, you know, what you're doing, who City Relief is, how it how the work happens, and then also I want to get like really practical around issues of homelessness. Yeah, but before we get there. Without even describing, I think people can obviously pick up on what we're going to talk about. But you came here for our podcast conversation right from um, outreach. So what what happened today? What did what did you all do? What did you all accomplish? Where did that happen? How did it happen? Uh, so it's Friday. So on every Friday, we set up um, an outreach. Uh, when, I, when I say an outreach, it's basically a pop up uh, block party uh, on the sidewalk for anyone who doesn't have access to a free meal and fellowship and friendship and, you know, uh, the opportunity to talk to somebody. Um, so on at 14th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue, uh, right in front of the Salvation Army headquarters, um, we serve every Friday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And we do that because Monday through Thursday, Salvation Army serves lunch. Uh, it's one of the things the Salvation Army does Monday through Thursday at this location. So when in partnership with them, we decided that we would, our organization would step in and offer lunch on Fridays uh, at their location. Um, so we bring volunteers and we have trained staff um, who are really 
really, really good at connecting with people and then triaging their situation, um, whether it be homelessness or food insecurity or unemployment or, you know, substance use or whatever. Um, we have a team that's trained to provide a next step to the folks that we encounter on the sidewalk. So we will set up this party on the sidewalk where we provide a free meal. Um, it's, you know, vegan soup that's really good. It's uh, freshly made every day. So it's not anything canned or anything. We actually make it at our base in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, we get Portuguese rolls donated from a bakery. It's, again, top-notch. We're giving away Bomba's socks, uh, toiletry kits. Um, we give away the best things that you and I would use without even thinking about it. In fact, some things that we may not be able to use because we can't afford it because it's like that good of, of the stuff that we give away. Um, and then we set up tables for people to sit and, and actually eat and enjoy themselves. And we play music and um, we invite other organizations and direct service providers to set up with us. So we can almost create this sort of like fair uh, where yeah, like yeah. direct service providers can all be at the same place. So when someone walks up the street and they say, I need help with X, Y, or Z, hopefully I can say, well, let me introduce you to my friend who works for an organization that can meet you, meet that need right now. Um, so that's what we do. Um, that's where we ca I came from this morning. Um, and we do that kind of thing eight times a week. So Wednesday through Saturday, our team is in the streets throwing these parties um, and engaging people who are unhoused and, and really going through a difficult time. Like this morning, literally, we rolled up um, at 11 o'clock when we start. And there was a woman, we have a big white bus that's been customized and nice. has a window that opens so we can serve out the window looking eye to eye to people so we're not looking down on them. Um, we have an office space where we can meet one-on-one, -on -one, do counseling and, and connections. Um, and so we roll up and there's a woman standing on the sidewalk and she was just looking at and reading. We, we On our bus it says like all our services are free. And she asked me, she comes up to me and she's like, um, you know, can she actually said to me, do you have any... Uh, connections to food pantries. And I was like, yes. So I was able to get into that. But come to find out, she tells me that this morning she was let go. She lost her job. Mm. And she just starts crying, mm. like right on the sidewalk. Um, and and she just, she didn't know we were coming. She didn't know, she wasn't planning to be there. But we rolled up and we parked on the sidewalk and started setting up the tents and the tables and the environment. And she just was watching. She happened to be at that space where as we rolled up and in tears because she had just lost her job um, and didn't know what she was going to do next. So that's the kind of thing that where if you, what we try to do is we try to create these curated environments where people who are in distress can one, feel cared for and seen, um, and then feel connected and advocated for. So it's not just a one-stop, like here's a sheet of paper. We also have a team that will follow up with people. So I got her name, I got her phone number, I got what she, you know, her situation is. And my team not only sat with her for like an hour when I left, I walked up the subway to come here. She was sitting down with one of our volunteers and had a big smile on her face. And so like that transformation from tears, I lost my job this morning to enjoying a nice delicious meal and sitting down with someone who's listening and, and hearing her story. Um, that's where the magic happens. And that's how we can leverage all of the assets and resources that the city has to offer for services to engage the people that we meet in the street. I also imagine this sort of environment that you create also on top of people feeling cared for and connected, like seen and connected, it also probably helps them feel because it has more of this like lively party environment they don't feel ashamed. Yeah. 
right? Because it's a, n- nobody wants to feel that way. Everybody wants a stable job and a home and like a life, right? Yeah. Where they're not worrying. Nobody wants to be have no money and you know not know where your next meal or where, you know nobody wants no. that. And even the people that so like this is something I, I talk about a lot, but yeah, nobody wants and even. I have to take it a step further and nobody wants to be homeless. Nobody, nobody wants that. Um, even the, but then people are like, well, why, you know, well, I've met, like, I know this guy, you know, and, I, and I'm like, look, even There's if, always a, yeah. even if someone tells you I'm choosing this life, if someone says, no, I, I'm, I choose to be outside. I choose to be in this room. I've met several people uh, who have said that. And what I would argue is that they, they are choosing something based on what they believe their alternatives are. Yeah. They're not choosing it because they think they have limited op- limitless options right. and this is the best one. They're choosing it because on a multiple choice test, D being homeless, A, B, and C, they perceive to be much, much worse. Right. So when someone says, oh, I'm choosing to be out here, it's like, okay, well, what are you really choosing? Right. You didn't actually, like if I said, well, I can give you a pro- uh, your own apartment, I can give you steady income and I can give you access to decent food, quality food, and you can have the freedom to come and go as you please. Would you still choose to be homeless? No. Yeah. Answer is absolutely right. not. But in that moment, they feel they that. feel that's the best option of the ones they have. Okay. So um, before we get too deep in the weeds there, talk about city relief. It's been around for what, 30 years? Yeah, 30 um, plus years. Talk about the work that's been done and also get into um, yeah, you've held multiple roles on this team. Now, as of a couple months ago, you're the CEO. Um, it's kind of a big deal. So tell us the different roles you've held, how that sort of journey has been, and then how did you end up as the CEO of this organization that's been around for quite a while? Do, I mean, it's one of the – City Relief is one of the sort of, you know, known throughout New York as a partner – helping homeless people, people experiencing homelessness through this difficult season. Like this is a kind of a household name in the industry, as it were. So how did that happen? Take take us through the whole journey. So, I mean, so when my, I like I, my, um, my wife and I were in central Pennsylvania. Um, I was 24 years old, uh, working as a sales manager for kitchen remodeling company. The short version is that I ended up stumbling on a church in New Jersey um, that I was, you know, thought they were doing some really cool things. And so my wife and I moved out to New Jersey to be part of this church plant. Um, quickly realizing that while the church plant is is great and they still partner with the organization, with, with City Relief heavily, they're one of our biggest donors and, and partner organizations, actually. Um, that's not where we were supposed to be. Yeah. That's not our calling. That's not what we're good at. I'm not, I'm not, that's just not my area. Um so I was introduced to this organization at the time called New York City Relief um, because when it was started 33 years ago or whatever it was, the founders um, were exclusively in New York. That's all. They, they, so they, they had this vision for this bus going into the streets, providing a meal and connecting people to resources. Um, so that was going on since 1989. But it was a really like it was a bus and soup and bread and, um, you know, they would bring it was a, it was a startup nonprofit, right? Like when, when nonprofits are are born, it's it's a different kind of <laughs> different kind of world because you're scraping by and you're just trying to keep the lights on, right? Um, so in 2010, 
I was introduced to the organization and they asked me to consider coming on as an outreach leader. Now, an outreach leader is basically the guy or the gal on the street. This is the person who drives the bus, like makes the soup, gets, you know, the volunteers into the streets and does all of the work of running the party, running the the, the whole event. Um, and so I started in 2010 as an outreach leader. Um, and that was really my first introduction into homelessness, into this whole world. I, again, Central Pennsylvania, Africa, Central Pennsylvania, now New Jersey, and then now New York City, um, just in the streets. So I spent years just walking around New York mm. with volunteers mm. and like hanging out with homeless people and like learning their stories. And because of my my cultural background, because of my MK background, I was instantly able to connect with these folks, even though I didn't have a full understanding of what they were going through. Um, I think being in a multicultural uh, environment allows you to develop empathy uh, pretty qu quick. Pretty quick. Um, and so I was able to connect with folks in the street pretty effectively. Um, and so as a, as an outreach leader, I just, that was, that was my jam. And, and it was, as I did it more, I started to realize things about the organization that were like, just not, not bad, but that could really be improved. Yeah. So for example, when I, when I started, there was, um, there was a lot of, uh, sort of thinking around helping homeless people being a one, like there was only one solve, which was like a Christian inpatient residential recovery program. Like that was the answer to homelessness. Um, except I was an outreach leader. So I'm talking to these people in the street every day, hundreds of people on a week over on a week <laughs> week's time. And I'm realizing one, they're not interested right. in that program. Two, even if they were interested, they don't qualify because they're on specific medications or they're dealing with things that exclude them from that program. And so I just started asking questions like, what is it that we could be doing better? What like so like if we were I, I the way I described it, I was like, we were we had a program that was designed to feed people and then offer a service to the one percent of the people we were serving. Hmm. And so I was like, we need to design a program to serve the 99% and still offer the service to that one. Like if I meet the person who's a good fit and that's that inpatient recovery program is what they want and need, then we will connect them. But what about right. the, all the others? What about mental health? What about, you know, um, access to benefits? What about ID? What about clothing? Like these are all things that folks in the street were telling me they needed and we didn't have an answer for. So I started to, like along with my team, we started working on solutions, um, which involved building partnerships. So like connecting with other organizations. And, and so over time, I just kind of kept working at it. And as you stay in an organization, I kept on moving up in leadership. Yeah. So I went from being an outreach leader to being the outreach director. Went from being the outreach director to being the vice president of outreach operations. Uh, went from being the vice president of outreach operations to being the chief program officer. Uh, and then um, our CEO, who was there for the first 10 years that I was, he was the son of the founder. So it was like one of those situations where the founder started it, his son took over, um, and then I, and, you. and then me. Um, so I, in, in, uh, February, I submitted my name for consideration for the CEO job. Um, and then the, the board unanimously voted, uh, soon after to appoint me to be the CEO. So, um, to me, it's, I, you know, I told the board when I interviewed, I was like, what you're getting is you're not getting a CEO, like in the sense of what you would envision when you think of a CEO. I said, you're getting someone who is passionate about 
this issue, who has literally done every single job that there is to do in this organization. Um, and you're getting someone who has been in this for 12 years, which is long time for New York City standards. Like, you get into some meetings with people. New York City is fairly transient in yep. terms of jobs and roles and things. 12 so years is a lifetime. It's a lifetime. So um, you're getting someone with institutional understanding of the city, and um, and so that's and that was the I guess what convinced them. They decided to take a chance on me. So um, I've been in this role now for two months, and yeah, it's it's a it's a challenge, but it feels right. It feels like this is um, because I love 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 the work, um, and because of my attitude of like collaboration and partnership. I think that's one of the areas that has allowed me to build relationships with people in the city and, you know, council members and community board leaders and nonprofit executives. Um, I've also become one of the sort of one of the voices who does like a lot of the training yeah. around homeless engagement. Um, just because of my role as an outreach leader, I would take I would train volunteers every day, like every day I would get a new group of people and I would have to train them in 15 minutes on how to engage and care for someone who's in the street. So you do that long enough, and now it's, whether it's 15 people, now I can do it in front of 15,000, it's not a, there's no difference. I'm just telling people, this is how you engage someone who's in the street and how to do it effectively and compassionately. So um, that's where I'm at now. And um, again, I have vision, we can talk about later on, but like where we are going as an organization, um, I truly believe that we can end homelessness. Uh, mm. we collectively, I don't think that city relief is going to end homelessness. I think we can as a society end homelessness, um, if we rethink it and we actually start to, um, see people as people and not as a problem that, that just needs to be solved. Um, if we can develop that empathy gene and, and, and really, um, craft some real solutions, I think we can actually make a dent. Well, if, I mean, let's just go there now. You said, let's talk about it later, but let's go there now. Before we get to some of the practical stuff, because I do want to pick your brain, I want you to teach us on engaging with people experiencing homelessness, because that is something that I think people are very literate in, and they just don't know what to do. And we have all these preconceived notions. We have what our parents told us, what, you know, we have what <laughs> our mayor has told us. We have we have all these things, right? We have all these narratives coming our way about who these people are, what they want, what they don't want, yada, yada, yada. And it's, it shouldn't be that intimidating because these are just people, but it feels very intimidating for a lot of people. So I want you to teach us. So before we get to that though, where, where, where is it going? Let's get the big vision on where you see city relief going so that at the end of the going equals no homelessness yeah. in New York city and beyond. And, yeah. then, and, 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 and that's a lot of people, right? I saw the numbers vary. I mean, I saw some people say upwards of 75,000 and I've seen numbers as low as 45,000 and everything in between for, but still. Specifically New York. Specifically New York. Either way, the bottom end or the top end of that, it is still, as I said before we even started, or maybe at the very beginning, you know, we are the city in the U.S. with the most homeless people and we are second in the world. And what I found interesting about this list of 15 cities around the world with the most homeless people, U.S. cities have six cities on the list. Out of 15 cities on the planet, not 15 countries, 15 cities, there are 196 sovereign countries in the world, sovereign nations in the world, and we have six? Six of our cities hold six of the spots on the top 15? 
that. And if and it, here's just a random fact about that, though, that it's also, I think, devastating and interesting. If that number just counted the number of homeless elders, homeless seniors, I bet you the U.S. would be top 15. Or, or like, I think we'd have like 10, 12, 11, 12, 13, 14 out of the top 15. Yeah. Um, because it's just crazy to me. But it's, yeah. It, and you have people who come from other countries into the U.S. Ex- with this like, like idea of this, again, this, this American utopia, dream. Yep. American dream. And then they see these people sleeping on the sidewalk and they're like, what is going on? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's really bad. But um, to answer your question about where we're going, I mean, so there's a couple things. So I have this idea or, you know, we have this idea of um, like almost like a three pointed triangle for how we engage homelessness as an organization, which is um, one, the one point of the triangle is um, homeless, like equipping people to engage their homeless neighbors and take it, like actually know how to help their homeless neighbors. Because there's like 330 million Americans, give or take. um, And some estimates put the homeless population at like 750,000 or, or no, I'm sorry, it was like 600,000, 580,000. So 600,000, I think was the most recent estimate, uh, give or take. So like, there's like, you know, what, 34, I don't know, I'm not good at math, but like 34 people for, who are housed for everyone who's not in the United States. Um, so if we can get those 34 to use the terminology for this podcast to give a damn, yeah. like they could actually adopt one person and you could end homelessness by equipping the house to care about the unhoused. So that tip of the, that triangle is that tip of the triangle is one key piece. And the way we do that is we do training. We provide volunteers the opportunities to engage with our guests and, and the homeless in their community. Which, again, once you can, once you see that you can do something, you actually know you can do it. And so, what we've seen over the years is people come out to serve with us. They're very skeptical and they're very afraid and they're very nervous because of everything you mentioned. But then, once they see that these are just people mm-hmm. and they engage with them in mm-hmm. the context of our block, our parties, our pop up events, they realize this is something I can do. This is something I can actually take with me. So that's one point that we can we can change homelessness by equipping and training people who are not homeless to know what to do, how to do it, and and what they can do to make a difference. Um, the other point of the triangle is just outreach. It's just the tip of the spear. It's going to where the needs are. Too many organizations right now are waiting for homeless people to sort of wake up one day and walk through their doors and ask for help. So the fact that we are going right out into the streets to where people are, and we're doing it in a way that allows people to feel dignified and like we treat them like customers, yeah. like not dependents. Um, and so we give them the dignity of choice and we, and, and like people who feel empowered, like actually will take steps to improve their situations. Um, there's a world, there's a, like, I don't know, like the difference between despair and disinterest is very difficult to, 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 um, discern. It's a lot of these, but like, it's very difficult to discern when you're just looking at someone from the outside in. So if I see someone that's in despair, they will present many of the same symptoms that someone would present if they're just disinterested. Mm, And so a lot of people who see homeless folks as being disinterested or the the term that we use in our culture is service resistant. We'll say, oh, they don't want services. So we we need to engage them a hundred times or 50 times or 20 times before they'll make a choice to accept our services. It's, It's nonsense. Like we can actually build trust faster 
if we give people the dignity of, of choice, of options, and we treat them like paying customers. So that is a huge thing that I think if we could set up outreaches sort of all over the city and we could actually have engagements with the 80,000 people who are in, like if we set up at like the shelters or if we got partnerships with the city that actually allowed us to access different places where people are struggling and they don't have enough staff to engage them with dignity, we could make a difference if we were in more places for that, with with that model. Um, And then the third point of the triangle is ongoing follow-up care, care coordination, case management. Um, This is something a lot of organizations uh, try to do, but they lose touch of the people with it's the hard. people. Yeah, it's so hard. So one of the things that we've done, we did, we learned this during the pandemic, but like giving cell phones to people, we can actually put a cell phone in someone's hand, then we can reach them. Yeah. And uh, if we put someone in a hotel room uh, for a few nights, what I've found is that they can actually like once someone sleeps indoors it's actually harder to go back outdoors. So you have a window of opportunity if you're able to triage someone and then you provide the wraparound support to actually get them from where they they are to where they want to go and you start planting the dream of what their life could be, you can make real progress. Um, Now, those three points of the triangle, that's how City Relief fits into the equation. The other huge, huge, hugely important thing is housing. It's investment from you know, the city and real estate, um, you know, people. And it's just like, let's dial back the greed a touch and actually provide like low income housing and single room occupancy spaces. Let's transition some of these empty hotel rooms into SROs and into places where folks can actually go in and have their own space because that would literally make a huge dent in the street homeless population almost overnight, if we could give them an option of a single room or something that they could take that would not involve a congregate shelter system, they could have their own belongings. And if they had the wraparound care that was needed on the other side of it, that's something where we could help with as an organization. So it's like a two-pronged thing. But for us, where City Relief is going, I'm envisioning a, 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 a place where we have City Relief outreaches happening all over the city, all five boroughs. Right now we're just in Manhattan in the South Bronx. Um, I'd love to get into Brooklyn, more um, farther up in the Bronx, uh, even, you know, um, Coney Island. Like there's so many places that I think we could do a lot of good. And then if we had that whole approach and we did it in a holistic way, we could actually make a huge dent. We could transform the, the, the nature of homelessness in our city for good. Why can't you? Money? Money. Is money it? Yeah. I figured because you can use, you've got a, You've got a tried and true process. If you have money, you just replicate that. Yeah. In Brooklyn, in Queens, you yeah. know, and all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting. So our, one of the things that we have, I think we've struggled with is people look at our outreach. And this is just a theory, right? I don't, I don't know if it's rough. No one's ever actually expressly said this to me. It's just a theory. But our outreach looks very cheap. It looks like we have a bus that's paid for. We have volunteers, we have soup and bread and socks that are largely donated. And so it looks like something where people are like, oh, look, they're set. What do we, like, we, let's, let's go give our money to someone else who has a big building. And like the problem is we have an, like our staff is, is the investment. The people who are providing, like, like, like coordinating those parties who are doing the engagement, who are trained in de-escalation, crisis intervention, uh, overdose, overdose prevention, CPR, like our staff are highly trained 
And we need more of them if we're actually good. Like, I can't launch an outreach in Brooklyn until I have the people to actually do it and the supplies I need to do it. So I think it's just interesting because we've been, so like from a fundraising standpoint, that's the the challenge I have in my head right now is just figuring out how we punch through this sort of barrier. We've been like incrementally growing, but the, the scope of the problem we're dealing with right now in New York City does not, it requires more than incremental growth. Yeah. We need exponential impact. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting problem to have. I think you're right. I think your theory is spot on from just from what I know about New York City, about you all, and just about the nonprofit space and how people think about it. Yeah, you kind of have to tell the story in a way because people don't people don't want to give to salaries. Right. They don't. No. They'd rather give to the work, even though the work in this case requires the 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 issue that you're solving is a lot of these people because of despair because of pressure and stress and everything they're not going to go even if the system existed it doesn't exist but even if the system existed where they could go on a computer and get all the help they need right in a, in a row one website get all the help push a bunch of buttons it's not going to happen no they're not going to do that this requires somebody that does have the skill set to sit there and walk through it and kind of see body language and see how somebody's reacting to a question and kind of take all that in, ask the right follow questions, get them through that process of what does this person need? You can't, maybe some year, some decade, but now you can't replicate that digitally, virtually. Like it has to be a person. And for a person to give that much time, they need a salary, right? You can volunteers, sure, like a little bit, but you need to pay people to do that stuff so they can be fully bought in when they're sitting there with the person that might uh, lash out at them, that might exactly. be stressed out. Like you need someone that is trained and in it in all the ways so they can like follow and, through. And, and having done this for a long time and actually been that person, I can tell you also you need to provide a support system for that staff to want to stay in their jobs. Because it takes a year and a half, two years, before an outreach leader is fully equipped to do the job. And so if you're not paying your staff well, if you're not investing in counseling services, if you're not investing in support and like creating a healthy environment for them to thrive at home and have families, you're going to have this rolling door of people coming in and coming out and, and leaving their organization. Just when you get them trained, they're gone. And so... Also, from an organizational standpoint, now that I'm in the CEO seat, I'm looking at it going, how do we create an environment where our working with City Relief is the most appealing thing for that person who feels called to address homelessness, who feels like, and also quality of skill. I need people with master's degrees. I need people with psychology degrees. I need people who are like invested in learning about how to respond and how to engage. And so it's it's really a complicated thing that requires a certain level of expertise. Now, again, we can, like you said, your point with the right volunteer, like it, the ratio of staff to volunteers can be like one to 10. Like I can, one staff member, I can train 10 people and mobilize 10 volunteers and we can do a lot of good. So that also goes to the first tip of the triangle I mentioned, which is if I my vol- my staff ends up functioning as the mobilizing component. So all that to say, um, there's a lot of work to be done. I believe that our model, um, while it's not by itself going to solve homelessness, I believe that when you incorporate it with additional uh, resources and additional like uh, ish, so, solves like rooms and housing and all that stuff. Um, we can then be the 
the po- the people who actually walk folks from the street and into the apartment mm. or into the room um, so that they don't have to be in the street anymore. And we can actually be the ones who persuade them. Again, gently, never, never compulsory, never quid pro quo, but, but because of the trust we build and the way we do what we do, there have been many, many, many times where other organizations have asked our staff to get involved in helping their client uh, move from point A to point B, not because they don't know where A is or B is. It's because right. they can't get them there. Yeah. I'm going to try to get through this next bit of conversation um, because of your audience and the world you run in. I have been trying to, and I've successfully, I'm going to pat myself on the back. You, you should. successfully cuss free so far. Um, this is the section that's going to be hard, though, because we're about to talk about our beloved mayor here in New York City. Uh, recently elected, and in my mind, just every day seems to be making just uh, terrible decisions that don't reflect uh, don't reflect honestly the political party they say they are part of, nor the well somewhat the platform they ran on. I think they were I didn't vote for him because of a lot of the red flags during his campaign. Um, all that to say, we've got a lot of things. This 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 mayor seems to be head over heels in love with uh, the police, former police, uh, not chief sergeant, higher up in the in the police world himself, from you know bygone decades. And there's a lot of things that are, I just find troubling because we know how you know more than me, but we know how New York City runs, and we we know how things practically happen on a daily basis. They can sound one way from sound bites behind a podium on the news and then how things practically, you know, we live in a city with 36,000 police officers, a $10.4 billion police budget. That is, there are countries in this world. There are countries in this world. There are countries that don't even have that much money for the entire country. And we put that to the police force for one city literally makes me want to vomit. So lately, there's been a lot of talk from the mayor about not not just talk, action as well. Um, Got to clear the streets. Can't have tourists coming. Can't have people living in this. It's horrible. It's this, it's that. Let's get them off the streets and we'll get them into uh, shelters. And I'm going to read a quote that almost made me vomit. Um, literally, I was sick to my stomach after I read this. This is a quote from just a few days ago. Um, we are on the wrong road as a city. We have tolerated homelessness, walked past our, in the sanctimonious attitude here, like the, I really, like, we have walked by them and we got to get them help. Just literally, it just, it hurt reading this or, or listening to say this. We have tolerated homelessness, walked past our brothers and sisters who are living in tents on the street, and we've normalized it. I can't help but to believe that if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were here today, he said he, but they would be on the street. It's not one person. It's four people. One of those is not even a disciple. I know you were going to name the disciples, and one of them wasn't even a disciple, but whatever. They would be on the streets with me helping people get out of encampments, end quote. Um, I have so much to say, but I won't say it all right now. Some of it might come up here in a second. Why is Mayor Adams, as someone who lives in this each and every day, sees the ins and the outs of 
yes, this homeless crisis that we have here. It is a crisis. It is not a good thing. We wish better for these 45 or 75,000 people, 100%. But why, why is Mayor Adams wrong when they are forcibly pushing people off the streets and into already overcrowded and under-resourced shelters? For so many reasons. Um, for, for so many reasons. So first of all, New York City is a unique city in that the vast majority of the homeless people in New York are already in shelters, um, which is a unique phenomenon. Um, these shelters, uh, it's, it's because New York City is a, there's a law, uh, it's actually called the, referred to as the Callahan Law, um, that requires that anyone without a bed to sleep in is required to be provided a shelter bed um, by the city of New York. Um, so when, you know, the, the mayor talks about these people, you get these people off the street and into shelters, he's referring to getting them off the street, getting, getting people who are currently sleeping outside into these congregate shelters that are already in place uh, where the vast majority of homeless people are already uh, in New York City are already living. The problem is most of the people who are in the street have no interest or desire mm -hmm. to be in those shelters because they have been robbed, because they have been assaulted, because they do not feel they are safe, because they have anxiety and they don't be surrounded by 10 other people, strangers they don't know, is not an environment they're willing to go into. Yeah, I've heard you say, quick, quick interruption, I've heard you say people don't choose to live on the streets. They do choose not to live in shelters, though. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the people that he's referring to, um, and again, the people— People, people, the human beings he is referring to, um, they're not in the street because they don't know about the shelters. They're in the street because they do. Yeah. And so by going around and saying, we're going to take away their tents, their encampments, whatever, and we're going to force them into, like, make their lives, effectively what he's saying is we're going to make their lives so miserable on the street that they will be forced to go into shelter and accept mm. the help that they are already actively choosing not to, mm -hmm. and it comes to the, it comes from a mentality that honestly is very. Um, it, and I, I say this not to be. And I know I don't have an issue saying it in front of you, but some of the people that support our organization and people who follow, like I, I say this hesitantly, but it's it's very Trumpian, and in in the sense yeah. that it there was a report that the Trump administration put out in 2019. 2018, I forget which one, um, on homelessness, where do you remember when Trump was railing against blue cities and homelessness and he was like really like flipping out on California and was basically yeah, San Francisco. Used, and yeah, the whole yeah, thing. Yep. Um, well, they put out a report basically claiming that the reason why there were so many street homelessness in blue cities or Democrat-led cities was because of the tolerability of that of, of of homelessness. It's yeah. because these are cities that tolerate, that make living on the street too tolerable, which implies that these people are out there because they want to be, yeah. because that's with the life they choose. Because again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about people choosing to be homeless. And so when now Mayor Adams is actually doing exactly what Mayor de Blasio did. Yes. He's just doing it loudly. 
there's the only difference between Adams and de Blasio is that de Blasio had some shame. uh, And so he didn't want people talking about what a horrible plan this was. And so he wasn't doing a press conference, like divinizing his policies. He was just doing it very quietly. Um, So it's not a new approach. It's, this is actually just business as usual. The difference though, is, is the, is the, just the, the overt, like, arrogance of the approach yep. is to say that like it's it's extremely paternalistic yep. it's it's the definition of paternalism yep. that says to these folks these human beings that i as your mayor know best yeah i know what's best for you and it's the shelter system um i know what you know what's best for the city and it's the police like clearing these encampments um and it's it's so paternalistic because it it takes away all of the it minimizes the very real criticisms that the shelter system deserves it also does not emphasize the fact that they're not providing and investing in single rooms or hotels or like places that people will actually choose to go into. Uh, I know I saw video footage of one of the recent street sweeps that took place on the Lower East Side. At least I think it was Lower East Side. There's been so many um, where someone, it was like 75 cops and like three dumps, you know, garbage trucks and one outreach worker. I'm exaggerating a smidge. But like there's a video of the outreach worker saying to the homeless person, what do you need? Like, what do I, what can I do to help? And the homeless person is like, friggin' housing. Yes. I need housing. Yeah. Give me housing. And so, it, and it's that reality of when the mayor comes out. And so as a, as a Christian, personally, hearing the mayor claim that the same people, you know, who followed the, the homeless rabbi named Jesus would somehow approve of his, uh, you know, taking people's personal belongings and throwing them in a garbage truck. Um, it, it's it's so wrong because, uh, and just on so many levels, on a practical level, it's so misguided because the issue with folks in the street is, again, their skepticism of the shelter system. Yep. Well, how is you coming in with an armed, like an armed, like militia and dumps, you know, garbage trucks and taking their things and throwing them in garbage truck, like, how does that build trust? How does that persuade? How does that like give these folks any reason to believe that you care at all about their well-being as opposed to the well-being of the businesses and the, the wealthy folks who just don't like looking at homeless people? Um, and then the other problem with it, again, one of the many other problems is I think it comes from this, ad, this attitude of um, it's again, it's it's very like it's very like MAGA. It's yeah. very like make America great again. Yeah. It's like, well, New York needs to like we need to bring New York back, you know? Um, and we gotta get the tourists and the Broadway and get all the and basically what they're saying, it's code, we with money. We need to get all yeah. the money. There's we need money back into the city. Um, and we see, we, the collective we as the the mayor, sees these individuals as somehow an ex- as a scapegoat for why the city is not bustling again why it's not roaring back as 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 you know and and so he's using these homeless folks who are the most vulnerable and the most oppressed people that we have in our society right now in in New York City anyway um and he's lever- using them as a as a scapegoat for the economic problems the city is having and then he's looking to in my view appear 
like he's doing something um, by picking on these these folks and and throwing their belongings away. Um, and honestly, the other on a on a big scale, what this is going to do, and I know that. It, it, you know, we've had issues of violence um, lately in New York with with the homeless population and both from them and to them. Um, and my concern is that this militaristic, oppressive approach, a- aggressive approach, what it will only do, in my view, is antagonize 100%. the us and them yep. conflict yep. between the housed and the unhoused. And it's And when people are desperate and they have no power, they lash out where they can. They got nothing to lose. Exactly. They will go harder and, and, and yeah, they will do worse things than if they which, did have all this stuff. Which will then lead the mayor to crack down even more and which will lead them to respond more defensively. Like it's, so the, it's just asinine. It's, it's the myth of redemptive violence played out with homeless policy. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I will say that your, your brief comparison you made a few minutes ago to sort of Trumpian MAGA world is spot on. My, I didn't say this, I'm quoting somebody else here, friends, but my black Jewish neighbor called Mayor Adams the black Rudy Giuliani because he was like, this dude is not a Democrat. He's not for the people. Like, just listen to his language. Like, this, this is when we caught, so 62-year-old dude that tried to kill a bunch of people on the subway the other day and they caught him. Frank Thomas or whatever. Um, first of all, Mayor Adams is completely ridiculous, stupid tweet. Thanking first NYPD, first responders, state and you know national partners, and then everyday New Yorkers. When it was an everyday New Yorker who found this guy, NYPD did nothing to do it. In fact, the one NYPD that was there when the thing went down, his radio was broken, and he asked civilians to go call the cops. The police officer did that. So you know where his brain is at when he first thanks NYPD who didn't do this. I'm getting angry as I even say these words. But then, you know, the the the, the Trump MAGA comparison, his, his press conference, the first words he said, it literally was like Trump was talking. New York, long dramatic pause, we got him. Who says that? Like, this is not, you're not in a film, dude. This is not a Hollywood movie where you get the terrorist. Like, it just, our mayor is very disappointing. Very disappointing. Very disappointing. Because this is not how, again, I'm saying this. I've been to some of the greatest and the best and the biggest and the richest and the poorest cities on the planet. New York is the best of the best. This is it. If you want everything, city, all in one. This is the place, like on planet Earth, I think. I believe that. And you're the person that got elected to lead this thing? Like, you're the mayor. You're the, you're the number one employee of this city. And, and, and we're all scared out of our minds, you know, Yes and no, because everybody still has to go down the subway. Like I got on that morning and went back down, didn't even think about it. Got to get on the subway. But also like we're just thinking like I'm, and now I'm looking around for a guy in a, in a gas mask, right? I'm looking around for anybody being weird. And, and, and that's how you choose to respond. And so this is the guy who is then a few days earlier saying, yeah, the, the, uh, the apostles of Jesus would be joining me in 
militarized, taking militant action against people who have nothing, showing up with garbage trucks and people that act like they want to help, but they don't, to get them into shelters that they don't, they don't want to be in. Or, I, if, or even if they want to help, they're not being provided the resources by their supervisors yes. to actually 100%. I don't want help. to judge. Yes, I don't want to make a sweeping judgment over these people. Maybe some of them do want to help, but they the backbone, their backbone is not wanting to help. It's it's so funny that the leading up to this conversation, you know, it's getting a little warmer here. Yesterday we had an 80 degree day. It was crazy. It's getting warmer here. And, you know, right at my subway stop, 125th in Central Harlem, um there are several people experiencing homelessness that just were there. They're there all the time. During the winter, they disappeared. I assumed to shelters, places they didn't want to be, different things like that. You know, I, I'm, you know, I'm almost like part of me is thinking like, did they, did they pass away? Did they get too cold one night? Whatever. There's not there one day, you know, in November, December. And then all of a sudden they're back again. Let's just say that person was in a shelter all winter. Now they choose to come back outdoors again. Why? Again, why? Because they feel safer all night long under a cardboard box, right on the street in Harlem than they do in these places. I've, I mean, you mentioned some of it, but I've I've heard I've talked to people that spend time in homeless shelters. They've been raped, sexually assaulted, they've been robbed, they've been hurt, beat up. All sorts of things happen in there. Things that don't happen on the streets. They they they're either getting help or being ignored on the streets. Being ignored is better than getting raped. It's it's also hard. It's also more likely that someone will see it and call and like actually protect them. If it if it like the, the thing 100%. in shelters, you, the part of the issue is every often person for them. every person for themselves. I met a guy just real quick story. I met a guy who a few years ago came to our outreach. He was like six five. 250 Latino guy, like didn't speak a whole lot of English, but he was dressed like ridiculous. He had like snakeskin shoes. He was wearing a woman's cardigan. He looked he looked like a no. Again, it wasn't and it wasn't because he was trying to make a fashion statement. Like if, if he, he was pieced together, his outfit. he would put put it together and it looked and he was clearly ashamed. Uh, like he was walking with mm. his head down. His he was not proud. It was not again. It was not a fashion statement. It was just genuinely he was ashamed of the way he appeared. And I ended up asking him what happened. And he said he was in Rikers for ten years. And when he was in Rikers, you get like this very very minimal like dollar a day or something. You get like this tiny amount of like commissary money every day. And he saved all of that money. And when he got released after ten years, he went and bought us a hoodie. He bought a pair of Timberlands and he brought a pair of jeans. And when he went into the shelter that night, because he had nowhere to go, and he was released from Rikers, and he went right to the, to the shelter, in the, the city shelter system. At night, he took off his hoodie, he took off his boots and his jeans, and he folded them up like he always did when he was in prison, because 10 years, this is how he operated. And he went to sleep, and he woke up, and it was gone. All gone. And he walked in his boxer shorts and his undershirt to the security guard to report that his things had been stolen, and the security guard was wearing his Timberlands. And it was that moment that the security guard who robbed him, stole his Timberlands, sent him down to the, the room in the basement where they had, like, the clothing giveaway. And that's how he was able to put this hodgepodge of clothes together. Um, we ended up, like, taking him shopping, 
getting him new boots, getting him clothes and helping him out. And then he like volunteered with us for a little while and um, didn't see him. Like six months later though, he, I heard like this car horn beeping and I turn around and there's a guy in utility outfit in like a utility truck honking his horn outside the bus and it's this guy. And he looked great. And he's like, hey, I just want you to know I'm, I'm working. I'm doing great. And he says, it's all because of you. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. All I did, like, I, no, it's not. That's a fact. It's no way. I, all I did was get you some clothes. But he was saying that those clothes were the reason why he was able to, to move forward. And my point is, is like, if the shelter system, if the mayor, if they wanted to actually help these, if it was about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would want, I'm pretty sure in the in the Gospels they talk about like if someone, if you have two coats, giving one to the person who needs it. Like it's not taking the coat that the one guy the has tent, at the tent or the, yep. and throwing it in the back of a garbage truck and saying you can either go into this dangerous place where you might get robbed, or you can sleep on the sidewalk with no protection, no you know nothing to keep you warm, like. It's just mind-boggling to me. The the way that our leaders, in a lot of ways, will rationalize and justify unjust and oppressive actions by saying it's like 1984-esque, you know, like it's like up is down, down is up. I'm helping you by hurting you. And they be- and it's like they believe it. Like I'm helping these people by forcing them to get to to by making their lives so miserable as if they're not miserable enough i'm i am the mayor i'm helping them by throwing their things away and it, again it would be one thing if he would just say like we are going to transform the way we do outreach as a city we are going to start providing bottles of water and you know snacks and things for our outreach team socks needs like so while people are waiting to get into housing we can start building rapport with them. And then we can even say like, maybe, hey, look, maybe we can get you into a hotel room because I'm going to, you can't stay here. It's on the sidewalk. There's a, can't have a tent here, but I can get you a hotel room. And while you're in the hotel room, I'm going to have that outreach worker. I'm going to have him work with you and actually help you get connected to find out what your health situation is, what your ID situation is. And while we're trying to work that stuff out while you're in the hotel room, maybe we can get you into a shelter room, get you into a shelter, but not a congregate shelter. We can actually get you into like a single room or we can have you bunk, like have a two room situation or we can figure out like that. And then when you explore all those options and you still don't have any progress and the person has been like working with and you have an out, like you wouldn't actually need the armed like brigade to throw their stuff away. Yeah. You could just send one outreach person who's been working with the person. I mean, I could, I've had people, I'm like, yo, sorry, man, you can't stay here. Like I've had people at out, out outreach. So I've had to say, look, we got to go. You can't sit up here. And they're like, yeah, no problem, man. So like if the, if the goal is just to move them, then move them. But you don't do it this way. The yeah. way he's doing it is completely disingenuous and completely counterproductive. Well, and we we know that we have the resources. We have the resources in this city. Again, if you were to take some of the billions away from the NYPD, like we have the resources. During COVID, if you and I got COVID and our apartment was too small and somebody in the apartment, you know, uh, was immunocompromised or we just didn't want to be around them, the city would put us up in a hotel room for 10 days. They'd bring us three meals a day. They would check in if you needed a doctor, all the stuff. That was all I had to do is call a number and say, hey, I've been, I have COVID, uh, can't, you know, can't be too close to my wife and kids. Where do I go? They'd have a hotel, 10 days, paid for, free, free of charge. We can do this. 
yes. we can do this tomorrow. Yeah. And have somebody check in on me every day instead of because I have COVID. How about I need a home? Yeah. I need, I need housing. Yeah. Right. And during those ten days, we figure everything out and have a solution for you on the other end. And it's because and it's because they're homeless. Of course. It has no, so like it, because if you or I get COVID, the city feels an obligation to help us. But if it's a homeless person, then living in a tent, it's it, it's it's we as a society blame homeless people for being homeless. Yeah, we do. We, we, we live. There's always in, a reason. We live in a world where we think where we it's, it's like this the myth of like the the meritocracy of this country where we say like everyone starts off at the same place. So if you are in a tent on Park Avenue, you must be you must have done something. This is and because we are so desperate not to give anything out for free because we want everyone to earn their way as if we've all earned our way. We end up creating systems when there's a pandemic that work instantly. But when it comes to someone who's living on the sidewalk, that is that that's that person's fault. He's to blame. So let's just throw his stuff away and make his life as hard as, as miserable as possible so he can't stay here. As we begin to wrap up, um, can we just commit real quickly to doing a round two at some point? Because we yeah. have way more to talk about. I don't want to cut it off, but I only have the room for a certain amount of time and I know you have stuff to go do. But as we wrap up, let me go back a couple minutes real quickly. This gentleman that you talked about that had his clothes stolen by the security guard and you clothed him and he, you saw him and he said, it's because of you. And you said, no, I just gave you clothes. Um, I want, I'm going to say to you, it's because of you. I understand the deflection, but it's because of you. You did it because you didn't have to do it. Right. That's the point is that you said, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, corners of this triangle that is the future of city relief is helping educate people and helping them see that, you know, 330 million people, 600,000, that means one, it's, it's actually a higher number, which is actually in the favor of people. It's like one out of every, if one out of 55 or 60 people per homeless person, right? So there's a lot of people per homeless person. We could eradicate this, but the choice is there. You could have ignored him and said, cool fashion statement, and then moved on. But you took an interest and bought the clothes. So it is because of you. Do you receive that? Do you hear that? No yes. deflection. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's because of you. That's the point that I'm that we're trying to do with let's give a damn is if you were to say, you're right, it is because of me. You don't have to wear that like a bad. You don't have to be like, oh, like, look how amazing I am. But it literally takes people making the active choice to buy that meal for the homeless person. That's, I spend a lot, I spent a lot of money since moving here, a lot of money. You know, I don't carry cash around. So a lot of people ask for cash, but I will almost always, if I have a few minutes on either end of this interaction, I will say, let me go buy you some food. Lots of them take me up on it. I buy them whatever they want. I just say, look at the menu, whatever you want. And but I didn't have to do that, right? So I'm not patting myself on the back, but I am saying, yes, I stopped. And I think I just became a better person. I think I just, be, I just, I now have a little more fortitude, resilience, as I look at all the evil around me, as I look at all the bad stuff and the good stuff that's happening, I now have a little more going for me because I chose to do that versus just moving on like most people are choosing to do. Um, so I just wanted to make sure, not that you weren't understanding that, but I want to, I let somebody else tell you that it is because of you because you stopped and did that. Whether it was your job or whatever, you still did it. And that guy's life was changed because you didn't steal his 
new crazy clothes, but you actually bought him, you know, new ones that were more what he would have worn. You dignified him. And it's that simple. It's that simple. It's that simple. And it's, it's, it's something everybody can do. Everybody can, like, I tell people all the time, like, everybody can do something. Like, you can do something. So I never hesitate. A lot of people, I understand people don't have a lot of money. Some people have a lot of money. Most people don't have enough, a lot of money. They have just enough money to get by, save a little bit for that one, you know, one week of vacation a year. I totally get it. I want to encourage more people to stop thinking about money when it comes to people that are in trouble, people experiencing homelessness. I never think about what it's going to cost me to buy those meals. I think if you believe in God, say God's going to bless you. If you don't believe in God or a God, the universe is going to pay you back. I think that. I really believe that. If you become a generous person, if you stop thinking about, oh, I don't think I have enough money in there to buy this meal for this person, just go buy it. Just go swipe the card or hand the cash over when they buy their KFC meal or whatever. Um, I think God or the universe or whatever you want to call it will give you more so that you can do that. There, there's also the dynamic of, of what you're getting by giving. Yeah. And not even, yes. in, not even in a repayment, like they'll, they'll get it back. 100%. But in, you know, in the, the, the transaction, you're actually, there's, there's an element of, of self-worth and of hope and optimism that you get from doing a good thing for someone. And that optimism and that hope and that good, like that may actually be what gets you through that night without like lashing out at your kids or, you know, and like if your kid, so like it, it's so exponential is just doing little things that allow like your life to be exponentially better just because you did one kind thing for someone that you didn't have to do. If people want to learn more about you or City Relief, what are some, give us some URLs, some social media, a couple action steps as people wrap up uh, the conversation today, things they can go and get involved in. Well, and first of all, cityrelief.org, really simple, really easy. Um, we, like I shared earlier, we need all the help we can get. Um, all the, you know, we're on Instagram, it's, um, you know, at City Relief. Um, and I would also say, my personal Twitter uh, is at Josiah Haken. Um, I also just launched a podcast called Neighbors with No Doors um, that people can check out. Uh, you can find it on Apple and Spotify and YouTube or wherever, um, where, again, I just talk more in depth about the issue of homelessness. Um, but so cityrelief.org, my personal Twitter, the organization's Instagram, we have an incredible pictures. We have a photographer on our staff who takes incredible shots. Um, if you're in the New York area this Friday, uh, we're doing an, art, an exhibit, a photo exhibit uh, on the Upper West Side um, to, to show 12 portraits that my colleague has taken of uh, homeless folks that we've served. And then we're going to have a panel discussion about homelessness and how New Yorkers can get involved uh, in helping their neighbors who are struggling with homelessness. Is that just live or streaming as well? It's, or is it it's just, just live. Just yeah. live. Okay. Um, well, the last thing I want to say is, you know, we, I did the numbers earlier and they, they're probably off, but generally if, you know, if you live in the U S you are part of the 330 million people, a lot of you live in places where you don't see homeless people all the time or no homeless people. You live in rural, like you're not seeing homeless people. You just see people with homes. Well, that's fine. You don't have to live in New York to help city relief. If you're not around those people, it's still a problem that we can and should solve tomorrow. It'd be really great if our politicians and our billionaires uh, did it 
tomorrow. They could do it. We could eradicate it tomorrow. We could, we could get homes for each and every homeless person tomorrow, tomorrow. But that is not how the world works, unfortunately. And so it's up to a lot of us that have a little bit to contribute. So if you don't live in, if you don't even live in New York, but you don't see a lot of this work happening, but you feel something when we, as we talk today, um, cityrelief.org to uh, contribute and help out. Josiah Haken, thanks for the conversation today. Really helpful. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm all the stuff, uh, but I found myself very encouraged. So thanks for sharing. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Damn givers and friends, thank you so much for showing up and spending time with Josiah and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>